Howdy, cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC's Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Colin Tanner. And I'm Steve Cuff. And every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. Steve, I'm so excited for this very first episode because this has basically been three years in the making. Fair to say... I think so. You've been talking about this with me for an incredibly long time, so it feels good to finally to finally pull it off here. Well, and there's so many different episode digests out there. There's the Harry Potter chapter by chapter. There's at least multiple, multiple Simpsons podcasts. Uh, there's some about Seinfeld. There's some about Xena Warrior Princess. I just knew sooner or later someone was going to get to Bebop, and I just I couldn't have that. I couldn't have that. I had to get out in front of it. And you know what? There might already be another one right now coinciding with ours. As we're recording. Oh, I can't stand that feeling. And if you're listening to this, you're like, oh, this was my idea. Make your own. I won't judge you (laughs) and beat you to it, though. (laughs) Uh, So why are we covering Cowboy Bebop? Well, here's the thing. I thought we would have this meeting. We would have this podcast when the movie finally came out starring Keanu Reeves. Didn't turn out that was going to happen, though. Now they're making a TV show. Will that ever occur? Probably not. I don't think so. Well, actually, let's take bets. Cowboy Bebop live action TV show by the end of 2019. What do you say? Ah, uh, probably not. <laughs> I like how that's just no confidence. Yeah, I, I always err on the side of cynicism. Well, and this is sort of interesting for me, too, because uh, you didn't exactly bring me on because I'm an anime expert. No. Nope. <laughs> Far from it. Um, and this is a big shock. Brace yourselves, anime fans. I am I am not one of you. Hmm. Uh, I'm not familiar with anime. I don't outright hate it. It's just like... Outside of Miyazaki and now Cowboy Bebop, like my exposure has been limited and I I don't really, I I don't function well in the anime world, I guess. Whereas for me, I was uh, very much into anime in the late 90s, early 2000s, right before the big boom of anime. And I, I don't really blame anyone for not being an anime fan, but liking Bebop because I feel, and I think anime fans will admit this is true, that there is a feeling that either something is the best thing ever or it's the worst thing ever. There's really no you know, seven out of 10, it's either perfect or it's garbage and you should never, ever watch it. And so Cowboy Bebop kind of gets lumped in with things that I think are, are lesser when people go, oh, that's what anime is? Never mind. And I feel bad for them. So why are we doing this show? Because next week, April 3rd, is the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop airing on television for the very first time. But before we get into that, I do want to discuss the history of anime briefly. Briefly, let's start off by talking about a variety of animation techniques. Uh, first, there were things like flipbooks, and then the, the praxinoscope was something that was used for a time. But animation began in earnest towards the latter half of the 19th century. And by 1910, Japan had begun producing early cartoons. And much like the America's early silent era, most of these were lost a long, long time ago. Let's talk about this for just one moment, Steve. The American silent film history, where, where movies really started in New York City, Yes, before it was Hollywood, New York City. How many of those films survived the, uh, the silent era? Uh, barely any. Uh, <laughs> really not a lot. Like, there's estimates, and even on the conservative end, we're talking like, you know, it could be 60, 70, 80, 90% of these movies are just uh, gone because uh, animation and early silent films were both not really valued as cultural artifacts. And so the negatives and the prints were not taken care of. 
And what ended up happening was a lot of these deteriorated because they were stored in really bad conditions, or uh, there was a series of big warehouse fires, uh, because I don't know if you know this, but film stock is very <laughs> flammable. So, you know, some old-timey guy, uh, you know, lit a cigarette, and then the entire warehouse went up in smoke. So we have lost a lot, a lot of early cinema. And I think it's safe to say that it went way beyond the silent era. Even when people were into talkies, they still weren't treating this seriously. And now you look at a country like Japan, which was ravaged by war with firebombs everywhere. And we're already talking about how flammable film is. Not many of these early animations survived. But the ones that do, when we look at them, they are um, very, very stiff looking, not unlike early Flash animation. There's one that stars a samurai. He almost kind of moves like a marionette and he has rolling eyes and, and really uh, just stiff limbs. But it, you can tell there's something there. And obviously, 20 years later, they're, they're evolving with the styles. By that point, Disney and Fletcher cartoons have begun flooding in. Uh, Fletcher, of course, did things like Popeye and Superman. Uh, Disney, I don't know if they ever did any animation. Hmm. Guess we'll never know. But the point is that they definitely influenced Japan. They had enlarged eyes, which of course is now an attribute of anime. And they give them more fluid and squash and stretch animation, kind of like what you'd see in a Felix the Cat cartoon. Now, this new style was incredibly popular with like adults and kids just becoming obsessed. And let's skip over World War II because we already mentioned that. One of those kids was Osamu Tezuka, who would later create the modern concept of manga. And if you want to dumb it down for Steve here, that would be Japanese comic books. Yeah. Well, should we, let's talk for a second. Manga is just basically a single artist with a story that he's got to get out. Here in America, we got writers, we got artists, they combine to make a comic book. Not the case over in Japan. It's one person. Insanely popular to this day. Manga is actually more popular than anime. And so this one guy creates it. He creates this thing called Astro Boy, and it's hugely popular in 1951. This is, this is the identity of the post-war Japan. This is the optimistic spirit that, yes, we can rebuild, and the future is going to be even better. So science fiction and Japanese culture really go hand in hand after World War II. And so, ladies and gentlemen, 100,000 robots assembled in the Great Plaza below have just heard the joyous news that they are free. The Robot Bill of Rights, signed this morning, now prohibits the purchase... It's a trick, trick by the Institute of Science. No, not trick by the Institute of Science. This is a decision that was reached by all mankind. <laughs> you see, it belongs to all mankind. <laughs> Coming, Astro Boy. He's this character that's hugely popular, and it actually became an anime, ran for four seasons and 193 episodes. And of course, this was a major showcase for the Japanese style of television animation, reusing drawings, less frames per second, uh, also keeping the integrity of the shot. If you've watched any sort of anime, you know that it's not as fluid as American animation, but they like to use different angles. They take the fluidity of animation and they spend it on having new perspectives and, and new angles, which makes it look more dramatic. And I know some people are going to complain that the educational show Instant History was technically the first anime, even though it used still frames rather than fluid animation. And of course, Sazae-san is a tremendously popular family comedy manga turned anime, but that wouldn't air until 1969, so we're not going to count that. But Steve, I have a question for you. Sazae-san began airing in 1969. It is the story of a mother and her family. It was very popular in Japan. Started airing 1969. When do you think the show ended there? Um, 1972. Keep it going. Uh, 1982? Keep it going. 92? Just go all the way up. Uh, 2002? It, no, it's all the way up. All, it, 2018? 
2,500 episodes later, Saze-san continues, now reaching over 50 years of animation. What? Are you serious? Dude, that's what The Simpsons is going to be one day. Seriously. That's obscene. And not only that, but Saze-san, you cannot get it on VHS or DVD because the person that drew the original manga, she will not license it out to any home media. That is in her will. You cannot do this. That's crazy. This is like some, uh, this is bigger than uh, Doctor Who or something like that that's been going on forever. Japan gets ignored so often in those lists. They just look for Eurocentric or, or Western appealed uh, styles of media. They never pay attention to Japan in those lists. That's crazy. But in 1971, the most crucial influence to Cowboy Bebop premiered with the anime adaptation of the popular manga Lupin the Third. It's a show about the world's greatest thief, an expert marksman, a master swordsman, and a femme fatale that usually tries to stab everyone in the back. Despite their expertise, their plans usually fall apart at the last second, and of course, it was all set to some sweet, funky jazz music and featured car chases. And this is also where Hayao Miyazaki made his directorial debut. So you like Hayao Miyazaki? Yeah, that's something that I can actually connect with. Unfortunately, the show was not very popular. Oh. <laughs> well, that's depressing. But the good news is that they brought the show back uh, and making it more comedy-centric in 1979, and that series was popular, and Lupin exists to this day. In fact, they are prepping a brand new series, for later this year. Flash forward 25 years later, and there's Sinitro Watanabe. He's an up-and-coming director, he's been co-directing different animations for Sunrise, and he's freshly entered his 30s. He's coming into his own, he's got his own ideas, but he's not sure where to put them. At first he thinks it's going to be a movie, then it becomes a TV show. And if you've noticed so far, everything we've been talking about starts off as a manga, becomes a manga, then becomes an anime, circle of life for Japan. The problem is that, you know, there's no manga that he wants to adapt. He wants to do an original story, which is way more tricky in Japan because everything is funded. Think of any popular anime, Dragon Ball, Yu Yu Hakusho, One Piece, Naruto, they're all connected to manga, and then there's things like Pokemon, obviously connected to video games. So when he wants to set up this show, he actually has to go all the way to Bondi Toys and be like, hey, can you fund this show? And they go, yes, we will fund this show. Watanabe, you are good at co-directing. We can't wait. Just one thing, do us a solid. We want a spaceship. You gotta give us a spaceship. What, why Why a spaceship? They want to sell spaceships. Oh. Now, and of course, this is probably linked to something that was happening in Japan at the time. There's that famous story of DC Comics back in the 50s when one comic sold really well because it had a gorilla on the cover. And then they said a company-wide mandate they wanted gorillas on the cover of every single DC comic. So I'm just going to go ahead and assume that a spaceship sold really, really well for Bondi and they're just like, put a spaceship in this. So Watanabe's like, cool, all right, awesome. I will make sure that there's a toy spaceship. And I think anyone familiar with Bebop will agree that the spaceships are really, really, really cool. Steve, you've watched a few episodes so far. What do you think of the spaceships? Oh, the spaceships are really awesome. Like the the actual design on them is, it's a lot of fun. And it's not, I guess I associate anime with really like flashy uh, spaceships and things like that and everything is really grandiose and the stuff in Bebop feels really well worn and kind of clunky and it's got a lot of character to it. Yeah, you see like cigarette burns and scratches and it feels like there's a story to every ship. Mm-hmm. And that's probably because it was designed by Kimitoshi Yamane who worked on a ton of different mech shows that were awesome. So he put a lot of that logic into every single ship that he was building. Bandai Toys, on the other hand, felt very differently. In fact, at one point during a test screening, one guy altogether just yelled, This will never sell spaceships! (laughs) Which I just think is the best thing ever. Like, can you imagine anything else where uh, like someone is just sitting in a screening room it's like what's your big takeaway can't sell spaceships i think that really sum- summarizes almost the problem with you know the japanese market when it comes to like making television shows but also the american market yeah you know we'll let you be a serial killer but you have to drink a can of coke mm. this gets really bad bandai toys actually backs out altogether during episode four 
So they have no sponsor. The show is dead. The show is dead. It's over. They don't have money. But then Bondi Visuals immediately steps in. So the show is back on, right? After this brief scare, they're like, oh, thank God. We can finally air on television. Everything is working out. And we're even going to be airing at TV Tokyo, which in terms of networks, prime spot. TV Tokyo, hugely popular in Japan. It made its debut broadcast on April 12, 1964, starting off as an educational science channel. And by 1968, they'd spanned into other things like sports and soccer, which are actually the same thing. And they gradually gave into that channel drift and became an all-purpose network, which we see with cable networks all the time. I mean, does the History Channel do history anymore? No, I, th- I think they just do Pawn Stars. That's it. Is that them? Yeah, and Ancient Aliens. Is that them? Yeah. What the hell? I mean, that's history is our world is a history of pawning and aliens. That does sound like something that would happen in a science fiction you, anime. You know what? You know what ancient aliens does though? Mm. Sell spaceships. Does it really? I bet it does, actually. By the 1990s, TV Tokyo had established themselves as a primary destination for anime. This is where shows like Pokemon, Neon Genesis Evangelion, Bleach, and Trigun aired. So some pretty big heavy hitters. However, the episode we'll be covering today, which is titled Asteroid Blues, never aired on the network. Instead, they aired on April 3rd, 1998 with the second episode, which is highly unconventional for an anime, especially when it's only 26 episodes. So why, why would they just cut out like the origin story, like the opening that sort of establishes the entire world of the show? Oh, we'll get to that in a moment. Let's make sure the story gets even weirder first. <laughs> The next few weeks, they showed episode 3, 7 through 15, and 18, before officially ending the series on June 26, 1998, with episode XX, titled Mishmash Blues. Not an official episode, but it ended with a clip that said, this is not the end, you will see the real Cowboy Bebop someday. That's ridiculous. That sounds like someone being dragged off of television. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Like the giant cane just like hooks Cowboy Bebop off the stage and pulls him off. (laughs) I can't think of any other example in American television where it would end and be like, Screw this channel, we have more episodes, just you wait. Now the reason this happened never gets talked about. I've seen multiple mentions on different websites that this was caused by Neon Genesis Evangelion having extremely gruesome violent sequences and that parents got upset, which is true. That actually did happen with Neon Genesis. Yes, some parents got upset. Others have highlighted low ratings, but I have to say, if low ratings were the problem, that's a self-made problem. (laughs) Because you're not airing the thing, you know, entirely, you're airing random episodes. Yeah, so... It's kind of weird, too, because whether it's the violence or or the sequential, I don't get the sequential mismatch here. Like, why would you go two, three, and then seven through 15 or whatever? Like, what what's wrong with four, five, and six? Like, are they more violent than anything else? Or it doesn't make sense to choose those specific episodes. I think we're going to be talking about that a lot because we actually have all the airing dates for every single episode. Okay. So whenever it comes up and this episode didn't air, we're definitely going to be addressing that. But the real reason Cowboy Bebop was taken off air wasn't because of fake violence, but probably real world violence. Two months before Bebop began airing on TV Tokyo, there were a series of highly sensationalized news stories about youth violence in Japan. Children were apparently running around with six-inch blades. It became sort of a fad that kids would just have knives. A 15-year-old slashed a police officer and tried to steal his gun. A 13-year-old stabbed his teacher to death after she scolded him. Overall acts of violence committed by youth jumped by 30%. The public was in an uproar. Yeah, that's my kind of moral panic. I'm into it. Well, and you know, Japan is a very conservative country in many ways. They don't like things going outside of the rules. So when there's an uproar, it's taken quite seriously. Mm. And also it's a smaller country than America. So it's easier to kind of crack down on certain things. So if there was an outrage against Neon Genesis's violence in their show, it 
sure, I agree that probably happened, but it's probably because of the real world violence and then that sort of rolled over into Cowboy Bebop. Also, the idea of low ratings, I think, is extremely exaggerated, especially when the show did well in fan polls in Japan. The protagonist, Spike, won for Best Character in the Anime Grand Prix in 1998 and 1999, and it was listed as the second best series of 1998. So by no means a flop by fans. This isn't revisionist history. It was winning fan polls 20 years ago. But given the climate at the time, it just couldn't survive, which feels pretty unfair. I mean... I cannot think of a single example in America where a TV show is taken off the air because of violence. Maybe edited, maybe postponed an episode or something. Yeah, I, I think that was it was a common thing to run disclaimers before an episode or uh, just cut individual episodes. But I, I struggle to think of any specific examples. And I'm sure somebody will chime in and be like, well, what about this? Which is fine. But. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's it's hard to say if there was a show that just stopped airing abruptly because it was too violent. I think as we go through these episodes, we're going to see a lot of violence. There is, there is violence in Bebop. There's violence in a lot of anime. But Bebop was not linked to a greater series. There weren't toys or games or cars. I mean, there actually was a game being developed. But I think that's part of the reason it got canceled. There's just nothing bigger to this whole thing. We're not banking on this to sell the next thing, to sell the next thing. It's 26 episodes and he's out. Even Watanabe is like, I only wanted to do 26 episodes. I didn't want it to be Star Trek. So yes, without having a greater connection to some sort of property, it was easy for TV Tokyo to shove the series off to someone else. But it's those exact reasons of being dark and violent that made a prime candidate for Wow Wow. Wow what? Wow Wow. Uh, is there an echo in here? Wow Originally started in 1991, Wow Wow was a channel that was best known for airing The Simpsons in Japan. What about that dub sounds like? It's pretty great. <laughs> it's hard to find online because pirating in Japan is also pretty limited, but if you can find that audio, it is, it is unlike anything you've ever heard. In fact, the majority of Wow Wow's programming were redubs of international shows. Now, seven years later, they're coming into their own, and they have new and original anime like Big O, before moving on to Now and Then, Here and There, Paranoia Agent, and X, which I will highly recommend Paranoia Agent to anyone listening, yourself included, Steve. Fantastic show. Uh, if you're a fan of any of those shows, you'll likely recognize that it has a higher degree of violence and dark subject matter. And that's really what Wow Wow was trying to be. They wanted to be the HBO of Japanese television. Now, of course, this was the late 90s, so even HBO was not the HBO of television just yet. But it was the idea of being an alternative that you can't see anywhere else. People that had that kind of bloodlust. People that really loved media that were willing to pay for more stuff because this was a satellite channel. Which, funny enough, Wow Wow would later go on to air dubbed episodes of The Sopranos. So they really are the HBO of Japan. Wow. And I can't stress how crucial this was for Bebop's success. If no one sees the show, then no one talks about the show, then no one buys the Laserdiscs or VHS or DVDs, which really decreases the chance that it might be sold in America. Or maybe it increased the chance. I've never actually had this nailed down for me. Maybe that made the bidding number a little bit lower because it wasn't a huge hit in Japan. Sure. Who knows? And we'll certainly talk more about American DVDs, Adult Swim, so much more as we get into every single episode. But let's talk about this episode, Session 1, Asteroid Blues, directed by Yoshiyuki Takai, who goes on to direct almost a third of the series. He directs eight episodes in the series overall. And written by Kaiko Nobumoto, who serves as the composition director for the entire series, but this is the one and only episode she ever wrote by herself. Now, you might be saying, whoa, 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 I thought Watanabe directed the entire series. He did. He was the guy in charge. But, you know, it's kind of like Seinfeld. Larry David didn't write every single episode, but he was a producer. He's the one that's overseeing it. He's guiding the vision. That's what Watanabe is doing. Of course, he's also creating the characters and things like that and directing 
uh, many of the scenes in here, but of course there's a smaller director below him. Episode 1, Asteroid Blues, originally aired on October 24th, 1998 on Wow Wow, September 2nd, 2001 on Adult Swim, and never on TV Tokyo. Which is so weird. <laughs> Let's talk about it. The title here is Asteroid Blues. There's no connection to a song or really anything. A lot of these episodes are going to be named after specific songs by specific artists. And I'm just going to give it a run here. Asteroid Blues, possibly because the blues are crucial. They are the cornerstone for American music over the past 120, 130 years. What say you? I mean, that sounds good to me. Also, there's an asteroid. That's true. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, that's all I got. Actually, there it does take place on an asteroid technically. Yeah. But in case you don't know. And nobody has a good time in this episode, really. Everybody's kind of sad. 12 Bar Blues, in case you don't know, is very, very important to American music. That's where rock and roll and jazz and hip hop and pretty much everything comes from blues. This created popular music in America and music is crucial to Cowboy Bebop. Let's go to the opening shot of Cowboy Bebop. The very first thing that we ever see, which of course is church bells ringing in the background as a lone figure stands there in the rain smoking a cigarette. And we have this tilted, off-kilter Dutch angle that's dropping down from the church down to street level where we see that figure smoking the cigarettes and this is juxtaposed with the song called memory which is uh sounds like a music box which is probably actually a xylophone or chimes it's nostalgic but really unsettling uh nostalgia is going to be haunting what say you yeah i just i just thought it was a really stark opening like it's not it's not what you typically associate with the first shot of a tv show (laughs) you know really uh anime or otherwise it's it's very interesting and it's not it's it's not even indicative of the rest of the series other than you know you're going to see something, like you said, a little off-kilter, a little weird. Oh, and by the way, I'd like to continue this tradition that I saw on YouTube back in 2009 or 2010 where somebody was posting full episodes of Cowboy Bebop on YouTube and then trying to do like a pop-up video setting, adding factoids and whatnot using the annotation system. And so one of the things they had was the cigarette counter for every single time Spike smokes a cigarette. We're going to be continuing that tradition because, of course, it was shut down after two episodes <laughs> because, of course, it was. You can't just post whatever you want on YouTube. No. I, I mean, also RIP to the chunky annotations of 2009 YouTube. That's so sad. I'm going to miss those. But yes, Spike Spiegel has smoked one cigarette. Well, let's go on to Tank, which of course is the opening theme song for Cowboy Bebop. But this is the very first episode, so we absolutely have to talk about it. Tank is just this fantastic jazz song. But before we get to that, I do want to mention that the guy saying 3, 2, 1, Let's Jam is Tim Jensen. He's actually a writer on the series, at least for the English lyrics and the music. So that's the guy saying, three, two, one, let's jam. What do you think of Tank as in, in terms of an intro to a television show? Oh, it's a, it's a killer intro. Um, it's super upbeat. Like, this is a song that if it came on the radio, I wouldn't turn it off, which is weird that I'm saying that about an anime from 20 years ago, but here we are. Uh, and it really, I mean, again, it it sets the tone for the whole series and also just the, the visuals that accompany it. It's really compelling. Like, I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but... This is the only TV show I can think of where I didn't actively want to skip the intro after watching an episode. Uh, whereas like on Netflix, it's always just like, oh, skip the intro, skip the intro. And this, I, w- I would just leave it on. And the whole series, it feels like a little bit of an homage to Japanese New Wave and uh, particularly the work of Saijin Suzuki. I hope I'm saying his name right. Sorry. When would that be exactly? Uh, so we're talking like uh, like 1950s into and through the 1960s. So basically same same time as like the French New Wave, basically. Uh, but Saijin Suzuki, he was part of the Nakatsu studio system, which Nakatsu was one of these studios that just churned out gangster movies. 
Uh, so I think you mentioned like with anime how they always had to they followed a formula, you know, or the gorilla thing where it's just like, well, the gorilla on the cover works, so let's do all gorillas. Yep. So Nakatsu functioned the same way. They'd say, here's a certain amount of money. We're going to cast this person, this person, this person. You're going to make this gangster film. It's going to be like all the other gangster films. Everything's going to be cool. So they're just, the studios are just owning art. Yeah, it's just it's just churning these things out. It's like a it's like a sausage factory for gangster movies. Uh, yeah, and some of them are good. And and but Suzuki. He stands out because he's kind of an unorthodox guy. So uh, what ends up happening is he keeps pushing things and pushing things. And he adds these little avant-garde flourishes and these weird camera angles and all these little things. And finally, he gets to a point where uh, he makes this movie called Tokyo Drifter. (laughs) The studio Nakatsu at this time, they were like, dude, you're pushing it, man. So we're going to cut your budget severely because they thought that by cutting his budget, they'd be able to hamper him. But that just made him that just drove him to do wackier stuff. So he makes this movie Tokyo Drifter and it's got this weird mix of like it's almost like a Western, but set in like Yakuza 60s Japan. And there's these bold, vibrant colors. So it's very influenced by like Warhol. Uh, but also like spaghetti westerns of the time. And you also have all these different like avant-garde flourishes that sort of just, you know, it's not your traditional <laughs> gangster film by any stretch. And of course, Nakatsu gets super pissed. Um, so th- their next movie, they're like, OK, listen, we hate you. So <laughs> for the next movie in your contract, we're going to slash your budget even more. Also, P.S., even though it's like 1968, uh, you have to make a black and white movie. And he was like, fine. So he makes an even weirder movie, um, which also really fits into the bizarre world of of Cowboy Bebop. So you lose the vibrant colors, but he ups the black and white contrast so that you get these amazing like light and shadow play things and the characters get weirder and there's all these other just bizarre avant-garde flourishes. He the guy that he casts as the lead um, he felt that uh, studios told him at one point that he wasn't masculine looking enough to be a, a, a lead protagonist in a film. So he got cheek implants. <laughs> what? So the guy. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to turn it back. Cheek implants? Cheek implants. His name is, oh, geez, it's Joe something, uh, which I'm sure is like, a, you know, a pseudonym. Joe shouldn't. Joe shouldn't have gotten those cheek implants. Joe shouldn't have gotten those cheek implants. But he literally looks like a chipmunk or. You know, when you were in high school and your friend got their wisdom teeth out and then they send you the picture and they just look like ridiculous. That's what he looked like all the time. What the fuck? And uh, the whole plot of this movie was uh, he was an assassin who got sexually aroused anytime he smelled rice cooking. Oh, that's normal. Yeah, it's, you know, just typical stuff. During this period of Suzuki's uh, film career, and and by the way, he got blacklisted for like 10 years after that movie. And I do want to say, like, real quick, that uh, you showed me some screenshots, and, like, this is Tank. We're still talking about the intro to Cowboy Bebop, but if you Google this guy, just Google image it, it's like, oh, my God, that looks like the pose that Spike is doing when there's that red background. Oh, yeah, like, if you you just Google, like, Suzuki Tokyo Drifter and just Google, yeah, Google image search it. You will see. It looks a lot like the intro. And, you know, also like the show and the introduction, Suzuki relied a lot on like pop art from that era, the 1960s, uh, these Western motifs, uh, but also just just bold and avant-garde choices that don't normally fit into this very stagnant medium that he was working in. And I feel like Bebop is 
it's following in those footsteps in a lot of way because I know I'm watching anime, but it doesn't always feel like what I associate with anime. And I think that's a very good point that uh, Bebop oftentimes will borrow from Western uh, films, Western TV shows. And so when you see something, obviously it's already resembling this director and the fact that the director also went after American ideas and sort of adapted them into a Japanese style. Uh, And again, I I feel like someone's going to yell at me for this, but I feel like a lot of the anime that I've seen, um, and and I honestly haven't seen a lot, but it feels like a lot of anime is influenced by anime. Like they yeah. all exist in this same bubble. Whereas Bebop feels like, yeah, it's got those anime influences, but also it feels very plugged into like American genre cinema in the 1970s, this Japanese new wave stuff, uh, all of Suzuki's films, and just all these other cultural things, both Western and Eastern, which is really cool. Uh, there's uh, there's one more thing I want to say about Suzuki really quick. Uh, I, I found a, a really great quote that sort of sums him up. Like, if you need to encapsulate this man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is from a, a film critic named uh, Manhola Dargis. Uh, I probably said her name wrong. And uh, she said, to experience a film by Japanese B-movie visionary Sajin Suzuki is to experience Japanese cinema in all its frenzied, voluptuous excess. Suzuki played chaos like jazz in his movies. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, and I don't think it's unreasonable to look at something like Watanabe. And and when you look at things like Lupin the Third, the very first series, which he says is a prime influence, it too, uh, not very popular in Japan. He seems to really adapt towards these these Japanese creators that maybe were undervalued in, in their time and sort of bringing them forward, almost kind of like what we would see in America with Tarantino and uh, Rodriguez for, for B-films. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about that later on because this is the 90s and, of course, Everything's being influenced by Tarantino. So we're still talking about the theme song tank. Yes, really. We're analyzing everything just like this. And if you look in the background, you will see text constantly repeating itself over and over and over again. What does it say? Well, I'm so glad you asked because someone transcribed that and I copied and pasted it. (laughs) Uh, Here's what it says. Once upon a time in New York City in 1941, at this club open to all comers to play night after night at the club named Minston's Playhouse in Harlem. They play jazz sessions competing with each other. Young jazz men with a new sense of gathering. Oop, new sense are gathering. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> At last, they create a new genre itself. They are sick of the tired and conventional fixed style jazz. They're eager to play jazz more freely as they wish. Then, in 2071 in the universe, the bounty hunters who are gathering in the spaceship Bebop will play freely without fear of risky things. They must create new dreams and films by breaking traditional styles. The work, which will become a genre itself, will be called Cowboy Bebop. And right there when he says they're making new films, he always said that every episode of Bebop was a film. It was a standalone movie. Mm-hmm. Even though there's continuity. This sounds like the internet argument where people are trying to fight over whether or not the new season of Twin Peaks is a movie or not. <laughs> yes, exactly. Cowboy Bebop started it. Minton's Playhouse, which is probably not something that gets brought up a whole lot, but if you are a jazz fan, it is sacred ground. It is holy ground. It is in Harlem. It is in New York City. And it first opened in the 1930s before being taken over by Henry Minton. Yes, I know I said Minton's before. I think there's actually a typo in Cowboy Bebop's intro. Don't quote me on that. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Minton was a tenor sax player, and in terms of jazz, Jazz, big fan, big, big fan. Uh, and he was interested to see where the genre was going. Now, prior to this, popular American music came in three flavors, church, saccharine suite, or dance. The people want to get up and dance. They want to dance. Big band. That's what jazz is. Oh, boy. Well, Minton allows his uh, performers to come in and play something that's for fans of music. They want to sit there and they want to listen. You know, the act of listening just didn't exist in music. Maybe it exists at the symphony, but not in terms of popular American styles. So you have players like Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie, so many more. 
and they just have these sit-ins where people are rolling up and they're starting to play and they're and they're playing aggressive styles, they're playing slow styles, they're playing cool, they're playing all these different genres that you really can't dance to. You have to just sit there and absorb the emotional state. It's telling a story within the music. So in terms of jazz, Minted's Playhouse, hugely important. The only thing I can remotely think of that is as culturally significant is the punk rock stage Heebie-jeebies, whatever it's called. Oh, fuck you. I don't know. <laughs> CBGBs. Jeepers Creepers. Well, I mean, that's like where the Ramones played, but that closed. Minton's Playhouse, however, is still around. So that's kind of cool. CBGBs is like a, it's like a designer clothing boutique store now. That's great. That makes sense. Soon become a subway. The sandwich shop, not the mode of transportation. <laughs> and it's funny because when you think about Tank, uh, it is big band. It is sort of swing. But it's chaotic and all the horns are clashing together and there's like this high-pitched swirl in the background. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sound. Um, and also, I did want to mention this. We did talk about this earlier. Some have compared the visual style of the intro to the work of Saul Bass, the poster artist who did things like Vertigo and The Shining and West Side Story. Bold colors and black and white characters in front. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it, it kind of fits in with the art style that he's drawing from too, that, that like late 1960s through the 1970s, like that seems to be the director's uh, or the creator's um, primary influence. Just like uh, Tarantino, just like Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. It really is that grindhouse 70s aesthetic that is being pulled into making a new genre. Yeah. Which by the way, even Watanabe is like, I didn't really think I was going to make a new genre. Like take the credit, dude. <laughs> take the credit. <laughs> yeah. Watanabe, he, he definitely fits in really well with, Tarantino and Rodriguez and even like Jim Jarmusch to a degree. Oh, that's a really good one. Okay. I, I, it's been 20 years. I've seen this intro over and over and over again. Sick of it. Every single time someone's like, check this out on Facebook. Look, it's, it's tank. Remember this song? Don't give a fuck. I'm Does this sick. happen to you often? Oh my God. And it, there's always somebody that just discovered Bebop or is like, wow, isn't this like the best thing ever? It's like, yeah, I've seen Bebop a total of eight times. I don't like to abuse it. I like to like put it to the side. I don't want to watch it over and over and over again, even though I love it. I watched it this week. I love this intro. I love this intro. It got me hyped. I totally just forgot about how sick I was of this and just watching everything. The point where the four characters are colliding together and then they just drop into silhouettes is the coolest thing ever. This is the best intro for any television show I can think of. Maybe Gilligan's Island. Maybe. No, I'm serious. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. Because you're trying to sell a show. So yeah. let's, let's think about it. You know, maybe, you know, there's things like ER, which I think are really effective for creating a mood. There's things like the Twilight Zone, which I think really established that you're entering another world. How about you know, The like, Wire, man? Uh, you know, um, some seasons I don't think are quite as strong for The Wire, for the intro, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, the, the Sopranos, I get really sick of after the first time, and it doesn't always fit the mood of the episode. Uh, for anyone listening out there, I've actually heard Colin singing the Brady Bunch theme uh, on a loop, basically. That's the last three years. Brady Bunch, excellent intro, you know, because it's selling a show. It's more so than the show. This, I think, is just like, you could show this to someone on its own, and they would they would be sold. They want to see what's going to happen next, because they tell you these characters, this thing, spaceship guns, smoking, dancing, like all of this stuff is going on at once. How are you not going to want to watch? And so let us watch the very beginning of Asteroid Blues. We open with a shot of the gateway travel system and a long panning shot going all the way up, which you notice there's lots of uh, black space right in the middle. That is actually the space in between the pages, apparently. That's what one of the directors said. Oh, wow. They made a very long shot because you actually have to build that physically. This is uh, Computers are definitely going to be involved in this, but not as much as they would these days. 
we hear a winding harmonica and a guitar. We're seeing these futuristic images that are being juxtaposed with old blues music. So it's really setting the tone for what we're about to watch. We go into the Bebop, which of course is a fishing vessel turned spaceship that has two bounty hunters inside of it. Spike Spiegel, who's training in martial arts, and Jet, who is cooking up some food. Totally establishing the roles of these relationships right here. You got one guy who's going to be the muscle. You got one guy that's kind of the nurturer, kind of the caretaker. And I love that Spike is practicing in the dark. And then when Jet comes in, he switches on the light, shows their personalities that Jet brings the light. Spike would prefer to just be in the darkness and just practicing his uh, martial arts. Am I reading too much into that? Story of your life, baby. I might be. We get our first look at our first bounty, Asma Solensen, who's worth 2.5 million Wulongs. I've seen so many people try and figure out how much a Wulong is worth. Yeah, is there just, is it, do you think it's a cryptocurrency? <laughs> is that what it is? Has it, it got blockchain? Oh my God. Do you think that someone's going to start a Wulong cryptocurrency soon? Yeah. I actually, speaking of Wu, uh, Old Dirty Bastard from Wu Tang Clan, uh, now there's a Old Dirty Bastard cryptocurrency. Is started, that right? started by his estate. So that's a thing. In case you don't know, ODB uh, is no longer with me. He, has been dead for 14 years, I want to say, at this point. Mm-hmm. That is shameful. Yep. Anyway. Clearly the bounty, Asimov Solonson, is named after the revolutionary science fiction author Isaac Asimov, famous for his Galactic Empire and Robot series of books. And here we have the famous bell peppers and beef scene. Asimov Solonson. He's our next target. Uh, listen, Jed. This guy's a major player in the Syndicate. Operates all around the asteroids. You said bell peppers and beef. His name's Asimov Solonson. Are you listening to me? There's no beef in here. So you wouldn't really call it bell peppers and beef, now would you? Yes, I would. Well, it's not! It is when you're broke, all right? What happened to the million Wulong reward we got for that last guy? The repair bill for that cruiser you wrecked. And the one from that shop you trashed. And the medical bill from the cop you injured. Kill the dough! And if you read fan fiction in 2003, especially Cowboy Bebop fan fiction, I saw this actually in other fan fictions outside of Cowboy Bebop. People just ripped off the bell peppers and beef speech all the time. Oh, yeah? It was terrible. What about slash fiction? Is there any of that involving bell peppers and extra beef? I would not be surprised. And like so many of them were titled something with like, bell, no bell peppers, extra beef, all this kind of stuff. It's the first scene in the first episode. At least try and dig a little deeper fan fiction, people. But the point of this scene, which often gets overlooked, is that it's showing that Spike, even though he's very good at bounty hunting, even though they got their last bounty... They waste all their money trying to repair all of the shops and the, you know, the hospital bills for the police officer. All of this stuff. He's too reckless, even though he gets the job done. I mean, Jed is, for anyone who is watching this for the first time, sort of like I did, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Jed is basically Barrett from Final Fantasy VII. See, there's my nerd reference. Take that, internet. But yes, he's a, he's a father figure. I guess you could say he's a bit like Barrett. Actually, now that you say that out loud, I forgot about this. The voice of Jet in the American version is doing the voice of Barrett in the Final Fantasy VII Remake. Oh, what's up? Seriously. Man. He's a great voice actor, though. Solonson is wanted for murdering his own crew and hiding out in Tijuana, which, of course, is named after Tijuana, Mexico, a border state and popular tourist destination. I love this little touch because when you look at uh, what places are named after in America, they're named after other territories of the rest of the world because they have to name it something. Why not name it something that they already know? Exactly. So if you got an asteroid, might as well call it Tijuana. It doesn't quite look like Tijuana when they get there, though. Uh, Spike is reluctant. 
but Jet informs him that the carnitas in TJ are delicious, which I never knew what a carnita was until... I can't believe that. Just because you're a vegetarian, that's no, why. boy, I got sold out. Oh, yeah. Oh, do they make tofu variations on the slow-cooked pork? I bet they... So it's, so it's slow-cooked pork. Now, I, the one I saw in a picture was just beef, or I'm sorry, pork shredded, put into a pile, and there was a tortilla underneath it. No, don't... Well, first of all... Don't shred that shit. Second, you chop it, okay? Second of all, you don't you don't pile it up. You put a little bit on a little corn tortilla, little cilantro, little onion, and you eat that shit in the street. Wow. <laughs> That's how you do it. Taco truck life. Apparently it is simmered in oil. That is how they cook it. Yeah. I, I had no idea. Uh, by the way, we're not going to be skipping over the gateway system. We're going to be talking all about like how does the BWAP universe work, but that's going to come in a future episode because there'll be an episode where that's more appropriate. But I do love this added layer that's you know showing them going through the gateway and paying uh, 7,500 Wulongs uh, for access to the station. It just kind of shows that, yes, there's an entire universe with an entire process. We do get a brief shot of Spike walking through a rotating room, which I'm going to say is an homage to 2001 A Space Odyssey. It do, yeah, it does have the 2001 look to it. Although I guess it's a little easier to draw that than it is to shoot it. Oh my <laughs> God. <film. laughs> Didn't it take him like three years to make that movie? Uh, yeah, it took a, a very long. I mean, that's Kubrick in a nutshell. I build my own cameras because this one's not good enough. Of course, another very big movie in the late 60s, probably Watanabe's Wheelhouse right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this also features the wonderful ambient sound of the bebop, which I love that sound because it just tells you this is not a house. This is not their headquarters. This is a ship. They're flying in space, even if they're just hanging out and talking. And Spike is walking off to uh, the docking bay, but he's whistling a song. And Jet says, oh, I really like that song. And I think this is a really important moment because they can't hear the soundtrack. This is the moment where we learn they like music. <laughs> One guy's whistling and the other guy goes, oh. You're whistling very well today. They appreciate music. Yeah, I'd say that makes sense in this show. You know, later on, they will have conversations about music. We'll definitely hear that. Uh, Spike sets off for Mars and his signature spaceship or Zipcraft. I did not know that was the in-universe term. The Swordfish 2, which of course is named after the, the Fairly Swordfish, a mass-produced biplane for World War II uh, for the uh, Allies. Uh, so if you ever Google a picture of Ally World War II plane, it's probably the Fairly Swordfish. And not your favorite John Travolta action movie from 2002. We also get our very first look at some extremely dated computer graphics with that rotating asteroid. Ooh, it is brutal. So much kinder in the fuzzy vision of standard definition. But here on uh, HD screens, it's like, that does not appear to be part of anything. No, that that's... Uh you see that from time to time where certain special effects, you know, you you get them on Blu-ray and then you're like, ooh. We then go to a series of gorgeous establishing shots of TJ. I mean, let's just talk about this real quick. You know, there's some dirty cars. There's someone chasing after a thief. There's signs written in English, Persian, and Chinese, uh, and Japanese, of course. And I think it's just worth discussing that, that Bebop's attitudes towards culture is that this is not some sort of magical time period in 2071 where everyone goes, well, we're going to space. Goodbye to all of our culture. Goodbye to all of our language. No, people would still be people. They would bring everything with them and it would be colliding into this this asteroid. And I, I think that's that's kind of a big part of the world, I'd say. And you get a little bit of it in this episode and, and more so later on, but you have all this cultural convergence and it's all messy, but it also doesn't deny the fact that in the future, like people are still racist and there's still like major socioeconomic divides, which are made even worse because instead of like, you know, the neighborhoods of the haves and the have nots, you have like the planets of the haves and the have nots. We're definitely going to be talking about that. Yeah. 
And also, really important for these establishing shots, there's a lot of people. And I think Watanabe knows that to really sell a location, it's about the attitude of a person, more so than just, you know, oh, there's some graffiti on the wall. That's great. That tells you a lot. But to see someone sitting there really reminds you, this is real. People live there. Inside of a bar, we see an adorable black and white cat that's sleeping. And there are three old men gambling and complaining about how they used to work on digging on those gates. And now their lives have gone ignored. These three men are actually named Antonio, Carlos, and Jobim which are named after the world-renowned Brazilian jazz musician and composer Antonio Carlos Jobim. Yes, really. Let's hear a bit of his work. crazy is that they these three random old guys are named after a brazilian composer that's pretty cool i love it wait a second so if, if he's from brazil then would the j be pronounced like an h so it'd be hobin i don't know I, I i actually listened to some interviews to make sure i got it right i have no clue either i was just throwing that out there <laughs> well his name would be portuguese i'm not sure how it works um i i got a b in spanish in high school so <laughs> i'm basically an expert better than me asimov and his girlfriend katarina enter making double talk with the bartender and begin a backroom deal for a drug known as Bloody Eye. Asimov demonstrates its effects by spraying it directly into his eye. And I do want to talk about for a second, this guy's like, show me how to, you know, what Bloody Eye does. And he tosses it to him. I'm not over this. I'm still upset. There's a sound effect when he throws this little vial that's like, whoosh. in fact, let's just play the sound effect. I'm going to need a little proof. Let's have a demonstration. That is not a tiny vial. I want you to go find a tiny vial and throw it and see what you hear. I don't know why they add this sound effect in here. It's so inappropriate. Whoosh. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> um, they also mentioned that it takes two months to make a single vial of Bloody Eye later on, which is actually pretty crazy. He sprays it directly into his eyes and everything begins to slow down. And he has one of my favorite deliveries of all time. Yeah, keep those eyes open. That's a really weird name for a drug, too. Like, don't you want your drug to sound cool and fun? Like, you know, like, best friend unicorn hug. I'd take that. I don't want to take bloody eye. Well, it's also red eye, I think is what they also call it. Okay, so, like, top five places you don't want to bleed out of, eye is on there, for sure. <laughs> what do you think this drug is like? Like, if it, is there a real-world drug that would even compare to this? Is this their their solution to cocaine? Because you don't you don't spray any drugs in your eyes. Maybe you, maybe acid. Maybe if you wanted to use an eyedropper in yeah. there. But that's crazy. It's weird. So it slows everything down. So it's but it has whenever they use it, it has uh, different effects from different drugs. So it's a little bit of a hallucinogen. It's a lot of like an opioid. It kind of just like everything slows down. But then also. As we watch Asimov take this throughout the episode, he just becomes completely like like a meth fiend, basically. Yeah, meth is the first one that I kind of like went to. Like I imagine he just popped like five Adderall. Instead of studying for a test, he kills a whole room full of people. We also see Katerina, who is very, very pregnant, taking a sip of beer, giving us a hint. Giving us mm. a hint on what's going to go on. Chekhov's beer. <laughs> and it's worth noting that the bar is called El Rey, uh, L-R-A-Y, in one shot, and then... They replace the A with an E in another shot. I think it's in it's in cursive and it doesn't look consistent. English cursive, which I'm not sure how good the Japanese would even be with. But I think that might be a typo because it should be R E Y, which of course translate for the king. I, th I thought you were going to say the Ray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now we have an excessive amount of violence. This has to be the scene, right? This is when TV Tokyo was like, no, I don't think we're going to be airing this because we see a man getting his head blown off. 
literally the gun to his head, and then we see the walls. We don't see it happen. We see the blood just scattering everywhere. It's a hell of an opening. There's that one guy with the bullet right through his head, which on Adult Swim they covered up with skin, which was weird. You didn't know why this guy was looking like that and falling face forward. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I've probably mentioned this to you before, but I love the way that this is done, him going through and killing an entire room full of people, because... If you want to have fluid animation for that, that's really expensive. That would cost a lot of money. Every episode, I guess, cost somewhere around $200,000, somewhere around there, which isn't all that expensive for animation. Maybe a little bit more. But the idea that, okay, well, how are we going to show this? Well, we'll just have him take this drug and you'll just naturally accept whatever the drug does. Oh, it makes everything red. It makes everything slow. Sure, I guess that's what it does. Yeah. That, of course, that's what it does. That's a smart workaround. It is so brilliant from a director from a director of animation standpoint. They cheated. They cheated. We, we should be seeing fluid animation of people being thrown through windows. But instead, we see the slow motion. We go, oh, that was a good scene. I know. He just <laughs> he hit the button on uh, Max Payne and everything slows down. And that's all you need. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Oh, and the best part is it's in first person. First person animation is so expensive, and they did it the absolute cheapest way possible. We are then introduced to Laughing Bull because Spike is visiting some sort of Native American fellow who uh, is a mystic, and he's predicting the future for Spike. Little racist. Little racist, uh, which I know some people are going to be really mad because they're like, what? They're not saying anything bad about him. It's not the point, guys. Not the point. Uh, now, some are saying that he's based off of Sitting Bull, and I'm not falling for that because <laughs> I think that's just the most famous Native American that maybe was run by in Japan. <laughs> he's based off of Native American stereotypes, but he's also, and this goes back to Bebop kind of drawing from Spaghetti Westerns, like he feels like a, just a broad caricature of a Native American from that era of film. And I want to be clear here, like even though we're going to be criticizing some of these things, I like the character. I like having him there. I just kind of wish they would have handled the scene. Yeah. Maybe give him a little bit more of a personality than just kind of like, let me just talk in riddles. That's that's the disrespectful part, you know? Mm-hmm. If we look in the background, we can actually spot a Sony PlayStation. Of course, there was a video game in the works at the time, so maybe that's why they tied it in there. Laughing Bull predicts that Spike will meet a woman, followed by death, to which Spike remarks that he was already killed by a woman. Elsewhere, Jet is gathering clues by smashing a bottle over a man's eyes. Yo. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell me some more. Smashing a bottle over. Okay, so far we've seen Spike. He, he's looking like he's a little rough around the edges. But the first real act of violence we see from either of these guys is is Jet just battering this man's face with a with a bottle and then just jamming the other part of it right into some guy's eye and be like, "Tell me more." And we also see his robot arm. So we see that he's a little more legit than maybe just the cook on the ship. Stopping by a gas station littered with graffiti, Spike coincidentally encounters Asimov, still reeling from the bloody eye injection. He's wearing sunglasses and he's just looking in this mirror. He is haggard. He's covering up his mouth. Do you think he's got blood in his mouth or something? Probably. He's, he's, he's moved on to full bloody face. See, that's the thing I can't figure out is like, can he blink? Is the drug preventing him from blinking? Because I never see him blink after that first scene. Or did they just save on animation? I don't know. Uh, a little column A, a little column B. Because when they, when they zoom in later in, you don't see Katarina blink either. Or maybe you do. I don't know. I can't remember. Spike actually mentions when he bumps into Asimov that it is uh, better to keep the water running so it doesn't drain the clog. Oh, no. It is better to let the water keep running so it doesn't clog the drain. You know, it's better to just leave the water running so you don't clog the drain. What does that mean? I didn't understand that. I actually, when I when I watched this episode, <clears throat> I heard him say that, and then I I like rewound it a little bit because I was like, wait, did I miss something? And yeah. then I thought, oh, maybe like it, it it's a reference to something that's going to happen later in the episode, and I don't think it's ever addressed. Yeah, it's just it's really weird. I I, I kind of just assume that maybe he 
I was wondering if he was like, oh, you're on drugs. You should let yourself drain out. Let the water keep running. Or maybe he's like, oh, I could catch you now, but I don't know enough about you. I'm going to let you keep running. He's he's talking in a riddle too, just like sitting bull. But Spike then bumps into Katarina, <laughs> forcing her to drop a bag of groceries, which Spike steals several items before coming clean. With my favorite being the hot dog. Which yeah, is hot dog in his mouth. Hot dog. <laughs> it's a hot dog. Yeah, I can see that. Just keep it. Katarina inexplicably finds this charming and just starts hanging out with Spike. Wouldn't you be mad? I'd be pretty upset if somebody stole my box of cereal and, and then put my hot dog in their mouth. Okay, I re <laughs> I rewatched this and I, I wasn't sure if it was all cigarettes, but you're right. There's something called flake. Like a kid with a spoon. So maybe you're right, it is cereal. Do they still sell travel size cereals in 2071? They must. I mean, they probably more. You know, interstellar travel means you need more cereal. Yeah, but you think you want a bigger box, not a smaller box. I mean, then, then you can't get the variety pack. That's half the fun. That is really You don't understand the fun in fun size, Colin. That's the only time I've ever had sugar smacks. I'm never going to get that stuff. This stuff is gross. So the two begin hanging out at the Swordfish 2 while Spike is refueling his ship. He mentions that it is a blast from the past, that he's had this ship for 10 years. He's 27 years old, which means he's had this ship since he was 17. We learn that Spike was born on Mars and Katarina plans to move there. But according to Spike, Mars is only worth it if you're, quote, rich. So let's talk about that for a second. It's right in your face established that Katarina is going there because she's going to have money. And it's probably likely that Spike left there because he did not have money. Yeah. And we're seeing that even though we've left Earth, like you were mentioning earlier, social classes are still here. Money dictates where you are in society. And then very likely where we are right now, this grimy neighborhood, this is the poor part of town where drug deals go down. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that Katerina and Asimov, they both seem to have some sort of uh, Spanish accents, which means that probably English is possibly their second language which is just fascinating to think about in space as well. I wonder, too, um, I watched this episode with the English dub, which th that's another thing. I We're I not watching any of the episodes with Japanese at okay. all. Okay. Yeah, no. Uh, but yeah, I, I wonder if that's reflected at all in the, the Japanese version where it's subtitled. Well, it's a little hard to do that. I mean, because over in Japan, when they when they impersonate accents, there's like mountainous areas of Japan that have like a little bit more of a country accent. Uh, sometimes when they bring that over to America, they'll give someone like a British accent if they have that kind of. There's like there's actually like a, a chart where they're like. I say, you, you need to provide me with the proper flow chart for this. Kind of <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to say flow chart again. <laughs> we need a lot of flow charts. Anime requires many flow charts. <laughs> Spike prepares for his second cigarette while pointing out the fact that she's just trying to run away from her problems and then reveals that he is a cowboy. And she says, you're a bounty hunter. So we know that cowboy is the term for bounty hunter. So cowboy bebop means bounty hunter bebop, essentially. Or bounty hunter jazz, I guess you could say. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about this and cowboy sounds like it was probably a disparaging remark at first. It sounds like it's an ironic term that just sort of got picked up uh, legitimately by bounty hunters. I can't imagine anyone be like, yeah, that's a cool term. Before Spike can say any more, though, Asimov shows up from behind and chokes him out. Yeah, and, and this is another thing with the violence in, in Bebop. It often it seems to come in just bursts, rather than like sustained grossness. Uh, but even something like this, where Spike is just getting choked and there's not a ton of blood, like just watching Asimov's grip and listening to the sound effects and just watching like his skin and veins bulge while he's getting squeezed like it's very visceral i don't know i i think they might have used like like rubber or leather cuz you can hear that that sound which sounds mm -hmm. like an, an adam's apple being pushed inward oh this scene i love the animation though oh it's great yeah cuz i mean like even right now i can see it 
That's that's a remarkable thing. If you can actually direct an animated scene that that makes you have that feeling hours later. Of course, Katarina begs for his life because she's really freaked out that Asimov is totally cool with just killing random people now. And so he drops Spike. She says adios as Asimov and Katarina get away. Spike passes out and his second cigarette goes to waste as it becomes ash. But it's a great use of passage of time, telling you exactly how long he was passed out as uh, Jet wakes him up and tells him that they need to get out of here. Cut to yet another restaurant, and we see that the black and white cat is cleaning itself. It survived the mass shooting earlier. And speaking of mass shootings, despite being in one, Antonio, Carlos, and Joe Bean are at another bar playing cards. This is this, They're not phased at all by this incident. Uh, and I love the world building, how there's, I mean, this is like a densely populated area, but we still see these like non-essential characters who are still like part of the, of the just makeup of this entire city and we, we kind of like circle back to them that's that's kind of cool i think we were talking about this once before but uh you know george lucas that infamous line about episode one star wars that terrible movie saying oh the scenes they rhyme no they don't george you made a very bad film but i do think that rhyming scenes is definitely part of cowboy bebop mm-hmm. where where things just sort of replicate themselves it's almost kind of like a little inside joke I mean, we don't need to see that cat again. We brought a cat back. The cat it was it was just sleeping in one scene, but it's an extra yeah. level of detail. Antonio tells the two other old men that he dug the gate with his two friends, and they have to remind him that they are, in fact, those other two friends. Just that little quirk to his character. Dementia. <laughs> Asimov meets with the sombrero-wearing Spike for a deal, and if you look in the background, you can see that the building was built in 2025. And also, it is open from noon to midnight every single day. There's actually a little bit of a listing of what they sell there. Seven years from now, will we have <laughs> asteroids that we go and get drugs on? <laughs> Called Tijuana? Yeah. Absolutely. It's all possible, baby. Yeah. I mean, what do you think all those Silicon Valley billionaires are doing right now? There's Elon Musk. He sent that car yeah. out there. Jeff Bezos, Tijuana, man. <laughs> Here's the question, though. Obviously, it is Spike wearing the sombrero. How did this scene happen? How did he set up this drug deal? How did Spike know that he was going to be there? How did that? How did Asimov know that the person wearing the sombrero wanted to do a drug deal? Did he get his phone number? Because when he was getting choked out, he grabbed the vial of bloody eye. I'm not disputing that. That makes sense to me. I, I'm, I'm not attacking this. I'm not saying it's bad writing. I think it's great writing mm-hmm. because you don't question it while you're watching. You go, oh, this guy's really cool. He's really slick. Of course yeah. he knows how to do this. Well, and again, I know I keep hammering this point home, but this is all like indicative of the films of the 1960s that really influenced the creator where they incorporate a lot of things like jump cuts and, and just there's, there's leaps of logic that you don't need them explained to you. Like it's fine. Like (laughs) these things where there's just passage of time and there's, and there's like scenes are left out, but you can sort of still connect everything together. And and that's fine. That's good. And you don't need to explain every single thing that's happening in a story. And I think that's actually worth pointing out. just the idea that story is maybe not the focus of bebop. Like story is never good enough. It has to be, uh, if it's going to be about story, it also has to be a joke, you know, about bell peppers and beef, or it's going to be also about character work, or it's going to also going to be about establishing a universe. It can never just be a scene that says, and then this happened. It's not just clean exposition. There's always tying it back yeah. into like a greater idea, which makes every episode so mm-hmm. rich. Yeah. And I, I'd say the stories are largely linear, but, oh, yeah. but there's enough nonlinear elements that I think they kind of add to this idea of it plays into the jazz music too, where, you know, you can kind of see where things are going, but 
it's not your traditional like four four beat yeah. rock and roll stuff. You're not playing. You're not just playing traditional scale. You're using like extra flats and sharps. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Secondary dominance, motherfucker. <laughs> Ooh, jazz talk. Oh, we're getting there. I, I also think it's worth pointing out, like you just said about the linear storytelling. I think we could tell the entire story of this episode in like thirty seconds. Just mm-hmm. like goes down, meets a girl, they get dead, done. But that's not the point. It's about mood and it's about absorbing everything. Uh, so you can't be, yes, there's a leap in logic here, but it's good because that's the boring bit. It would have just been story. You wouldn't have appreciated it. We're going to get it out of the way. Sure, we can add some thing where he has some weird gadget and he listens into a device about something about sombreros. Who cares? I'm serious. This right here is the good bit because, of course, he reveals himself, throws off his uh, poncho, shoots the bloody eye. And then we have, as I've referred to before, and many things, a star-making moment. Spike is a cool guy. He's a, he's a goofy guy. We like him, right? Asimov, we've seen him kill an entire room full of people. We've seen him almost kill Spike. Wackham and almost choking him to death. A very visceral scene. Spike is not going to be able to win this fight. And instead, he is like having the time of his life. This is nothing for him. I think the best part of this scene for me is just how rhythmic of a fight scene it is because again a lot of the violence it it comes in short bursts it's very visceral and this almost feels like a dance and it's Mm. great because you have this great music playing in the background this kind of like upbeat number New York Rush which you can get off the very first CD look at you nerd boy just saying I listen to it a lot after I watch this right Uh, but yeah it's great I mean you get a lot of different cool cuts to different shots the first person perspective of Katarina holding a gun with that shaky cam and there's really fluid animation in the distance the way that the camera kind of looks downward it's focusing on them and it kind of points down right when Spike kicks him in the head this animation is amazing so far they've been really reserved and it totally pays off right here by the way the punching sound effects when he's throwing punches and he's not connecting the exact same sound effect for when he threw the vial except it works here because a fist makes sense a vial does not i'm not letting go of that hanna-barbera bullshit i do not like that (laughs) now right as this is going on we see a ship fly in and just riddle the entire patio with bullets uh, Spike actually beats up a car full of people who are trying to shoot Asimov, which is one of the funniest scenes in the very first episodes. And then we see two cars being lifted up by the Hammerhead, which of course is uh, Jet's uh, spaceship, which apparently was used for hauling and towing. But it's safe to say maybe construction as well, because it lifted up those two cars way too easy. Also, Katarina's stomach accidentally gets shot and all the vials of bloody eye fall out, revealing she was not pregnant after all. Oh, Chekhov's beer coming back around. I mean, seriously, though, that is a very perverted thing to do in 1999 in Japan to reveal that this pregnancy was fake. And in fact, she was holding drugs like that is Maria full of grace years ahead of its time. (laughs) So the couple actually steal a spaceship. They are flying away. And Spike chases after him. He shoots a couple of ships that are uh, chasing after them. There's like these mob ships that are crashing into bridges. I wonder if he's going to have to pay for that. The couple are flying right through a city for a split second. If you look really, really close, you can see that they fly over water, over a boat, and then they're past a city. It's only two shots, but it really tells you that even on this asteroid, this little floating asteroid, there's a bad neighborhood, and then there's this glowing, pristine Blue City, really telling you that there's a difference in class. So the other the other thing about this scene is, uh, especially in contrast to the last fight scene where it was all very rhythmic and upbeat and you had this kind of jazzy number where they were fighting, uh, in this chase scene, they do really the exact opposite of what you would expect. And there's this really stark contrast between the music that's playing and the action that's playing on the, on the screen. So you have this really intense spaceship chase thing uh, along this asteroid. But the song that's playing 
is super mellow. And it's so great because I think it's it's easy to associate something like that with like a, a just a John Williams score sort of blaring in your ears. And this is super subdued. And it's great too because you have this overwhelming feeling that uh, Asimov isn't getting away. And it kind of it kind of puts like a like a somber tone to the whole thing, uh, which again really interesting because well if Hasmoff isn't going to get away then our heroes are going to catch him and wouldn't that be a happy thing? So it's it's weird how it almost sets it up as uh, sentimental towards the villains. Totally, totally. There's definitely there's uh, and and sympathetic towards the villains really that they're they're. Oh, did I say sentimental? What the fuck is wrong? No, with but me? That, I would say that's absolutely correct. <laughs> no, I'd say that it absolutely is, because the thing is even though we're only seeing the uh, this part of the story. They've been together for many, many years. You can tell. And she is witnessing that there's something wrong that was not there before. Because when she, when he calls her an idiot, you see that look in her eyes like, this is not how he is. This mm-hmm. is not the person I know. And having that music, like you pointed out, it's a synthesizer and a saxophone with heavy reverb. I don't know. It actually makes you pay attention more to the action. Sure. It's not distracting you from what's going on. Let's talk about Asimov. He is full-blown uh, Fraggle Rock Muppet, big-eyed dude. Tweaking balls. Got that anime sweat going. Oh my God! What is wrong with him? He like, can you fix that? If they took him to a hospital, could they do anything for that guy? He's no, in- it's like you're never gonna blink again, buddy. So uh, don't worry about it. You're going with the theory that he can't blink. He can't blink. I mean, not anymore. Because <laughs> I really can't tell if they're saving money or not in that animation. Oh God. I love when he when he crushes the vial. He's like, Ugh! stop it, please! That stuff is going to kill you. No! no! Oh my God! I, I almost left that out. The part where he shatters the glass into his eye. Yeah, he already can't blink. Why do you think he does that? <laughs> Why not? I mean, if he if he thinks of it as like a performance enhancing thing, sort mm. of like he did with the with the shootout in the beginning, uh, I guess he thinks that if he just goes full tweaker, then he'll be able to get away. You know, it's kind of like a last ditch desperate thing. Do you feel bad for Asimov? No, he's kind of a dick. That's the thing I can't figure out though, is because you can tell that he's already tested out Bloody Eye before. That's what they say. I don't know what happened today. Was it that he just had to spend all the money or he had to get all the money today? Because he seems experienced with the drug. I don't understand why he made this mistake. Ooh, she kept telling him she wanted to go to Mars. Yep. Oh, you shouldn't have said that now. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. could have had a nice little uh, trip on Mars and no one would have had their eyes get glass in it if you just would have been a little more chill about the whole thing. Well, he's got worse things coming to him, so. <laughs> yeah, he does. Spike flies up. He's ready to stop them, but unfortunately they are leaving the asteroid and there is a, a police barricade, which must be in Incredibly difficult in space where you can go in 360 degrees. Yeah. Uh, and of course, she shoots him, whispering the words, adios, just like before. Just just one in the dome piece to her lover. Bullets rain down. Just dem- And the yeah. cool thing about it is that when you back away from the shot, I don't know if it was ever clear to me the first time I saw it, but that, you know, there's no explosion. And it looks like um, the way that the light is set up, reflecting against the glass, it's almost heavenly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really stark. Well, yeah, and we call it a police barricade, but really it's more of a firing line. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I wonder why they're doing this. Why, how's the yeah. police going to solve so any So she problems? caps him, and then they're like, all right, time to just pump a 10,000 bullets into this ship that's coming at us. You know what? I bet if they didn't fly past that city, they wouldn't have done it. If he stayed in the poor area, yeah. wouldn't have been a problem. I had to get past the city, though. There you go. No, you were talking to me earlier that the the scene was uh, what's what's the movie? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I guess the whole Katarina and Asimov relationship and how they function in this story it's uh, very reminiscent of like your your lovers on the lamb trope. 
uh, in, was that a in trope? American cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is it was popularized really in like the 1950s with the movies of Nicholas Ray. So he did uh, They Live by Night. He did uh, Rebel Without a Cause. I heard. What he did? And shit come up. What happened to him? He was killed last night breaking into a liquor store. Say it runs in threes. Oh, honey, I didn't mean to get you mixed up in this. I can take care of myself. Anyway, they can't put nothing on you, nothing in this world. When did you start thinking about me? Things like that. And then the one that this really reminded me of was Bonnie and Clyde. So you've got Warren Beatty and uh, Faye Dunaway, and they're in love, and they're committing all these crimes. And then we know there's the famous scene at the end where uh, they're just, again, riddled with bullets, sort of like we see here. Uh, but this, again, it falls it falls in with the creator's influences because uh, I think... That was 70s too, wasn't it? Yeah. So, wow. so Bonnie and Clyde in the 1970s, and then there was a long string of these movies. So after that, uh, Terrence Malick made Badlands, similar type of story. Uh, Robert Altman made Thieves Like Us. And they're always in love. Yeah, they're always in love. The difference is, and this is kind of the twist here, is these movies, in Altman's movies, in Malick's movie, in, in Nicholas Ray's films... Uh, and in Bonnie and Clyde, to a degree, these are all sympathetic characters. Like, you kind of feel for them. Like, you know, you realize that they're villains and what they're doing is bad, but also, you know, they're in love and you want them to sort of succeed on, on a different level. Uh, whereas with, with these characters... Kind of Rena, I feel bad for. I mean, yeah, I kind of feel bad for her, but at the same time, it's Just like... Just want to go to Mars. She's, she, <laughs> you lose some of, that, some of that sympathy for her. And also, there's no... Hope of any sort of happy ending here. Like there's just, you've got bad people in bad situations. And unlike, uh, you know, a Nicholas Ray movie, we're like, maybe these kids will make it out. This, there's... Bonnie and Clyde didn't turn out so hot. No, Bonnie and Clyde didn't turn out so hot. But uh, yeah, there's just, there's no hope here for them. And you can tell that almost immediately. I mean, like, do these movies usually end with like a shooting in a car chase and things like that? Well, a lot of times they do. But the other thing is, too, is it's usually positioned mm. uh, that, you know, after the shootout thing, it's like, well, you know, and, and, you know, justice has been served or whatever here. But at the end of the Bebop episode, Mm-mm. it doesn't feel like anyone's content because the police that kill uh, Katerina and Asimov are... They're just literally far off in the distance and we have no interaction with them. So they're dead. Yeah. But at the same time, our protagonists here that have been pursuing them, they don't get the bounty. It's a sad ending. Yeah. No so, one wins. Yeah. Nobody wins and your heroes are failures. That's the first episode of this, of this show. And a lot of people had to die. Yeah. Like you would think it has to mean something if like 20 something people got killed. No, no Wait one. Wait a second. Learned. Colin, I need to, I need to uh, say a retraction. Whoa. Oh my God. Uh, I called it an episode. These aren't episodes. Oh, it's a session. It's Very a session. Good. I'm I'm so sorry. I was actually concerned. Like, is there something wrong with the device? Are we not recording? Nah, I mean, that's the thing about Bebop is that it's more about an emotion than it is like about a real story. If I told you the story of this, it would be like, eh, big deal. Somebody mm-hmm. dies. Whatever. I don't get. I don't, so a crook gets killed. Yeah, Who cares? It's, it's all in the execution, which is what Bebop does well. I don't know, Katarina. I think that she just knew that. I don't. You know, I wonder what she would have done. Had the police not been there, if she still would have shot him. That's the one thing I wonder, because she's looking at him like, this is not good. Yeah, I mean, I would have. Yeah, absolutely. He looks weird. He does look really weird. not going to marry that. (laughs) That's that's not going to work out. (laughs) Can you imagine their wedding photos? I'm just like, yeah. No, I haven't blinked in six years. (laughs) Keep those vows open. (laughs) (laughs) What's going to happen there? Well, we're back on the bebop which is echoing the very first scene. They rhyme. And Jet says that the special is bell peppers and beef, 
as the camera backs away and we see see you space cowboy just a great ending i love it so much because it's just it's just melancholy it's just like fuck asteroid blues does the title live up to the episode i'd say yeah yeah it takes place on an asteroid it's kind of a bummer (laughs) it really is uh so those of you keeping track at home spike has had three cigarettes so far he's uh, he's been a very good boy it's not a chain smoker yet that's pretty good uh so let's get a bit of feedback over at Funimation.com, we're going to be doing this every single episode. We're going to be going to the fans and saying, what did the fans think? At Funimation.com, the streaming service, uh, this episode released uh, received 3.5 out of 5 stars, which I think is kind of low. I, I think it's a really good first episode. But over at IMDb, they give it an ever so slightly better 7.6 out of 10. That's because... Like everything on IMDb, 90% of the things that you will look at on IMDb, they're rated like between a 7.3 and a 7.6. That's literally everything. It's the Yelp of movies. It is. It really is. Well, what say you? I mean, let's ignore the star rating and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Well, first of all, I don't uh, like Funimation's rating system. I only listen to Crunchyroll's rating. No, that's not true. (laughs) I just know Crunchyroll's a thing. Uh, No, I I thought it was a great first episode. Uh, It takes a lot to get me hooked on an anime show uh, it takes me it takes a lot to get me hooked on any show and I think this does a good job of establishing who the characters are establishing uh, the rhythm and and the ideas and the art style and just everything like it encapsulates what the series is about very very well mm. uh, and it's compelling so yeah fuck you better than a 3.5 absolutely and I will also say that so many other TV shows leave you with that cliffhanger what's going to happen next time now with this show, it's over. Nope, it's done. Self-contained. There is no reason if you want to see those two characters, if you want to see Mr. Muppet and his lady go off into Mars, it's not happening. They're gone. And mm-hmm. now you just have these two solemn characters uh, left. So yep. when you return, it's because you want to have that sensation of a full experience rather than that constant thread that's pulling you back. And that's what I love about Bebop. I love shows like The Wire. But at the end of the day, I think a self-contained episode, much like The Twilight Zone uh, and things like that, much preferred, always. Which is why I give it a 3.6. <laughs> God damn it. You know, we should probably talk about the real folk blues, the closing theme, but I think we should save that for next episode because we've done so much in this very first one. So are we good to close up this session? Yes, we are, Colin. And hey, you're listening to a podcast on the Optimism Vaccine Network. So uh, I want to remind you, you can follow us on Twitter at Optimism Vaccine. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. Uh, Colin, where can people find you on Twitter? You will find me on Twitter at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. Crychop. And you can also go to youtube.com slash video games are dumb to check out some of my video work about video games. Yeah. So there. That's a thing you can do. Uh, also, hey, if you're listening to this podcast, do us a favor. Uh, rate and review the podcast, please. It helps us out. It helps more people discover the show. The more people that discover the show, the more cool stuff we can do for you guys. So go on there. Give us five stars. Give us a written review. Uh, write that Colin is a handsome boy because he is. He's a very handsome boy. Okay. For Steve Cuff, I'm Colin Tanner. See ya, Space Cowboy. Hey, you see that dog? I'm actually more of a cat person. No, the dog on the TV. I mean, they're actually kind of the same animal. I'm talking about the show. Uh, One barks, one meows, it's the same thing. Nah, forget it. Next episode, Stray Dog Strut. Are you even listening to me? 